Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Knock, knock. Who's there? Interrupting feral pig. Interrupting feral pig. Ah! I'm Rico. I'm yeah. Brendan Francis Noonan. Hey. Sorry, it's infectious. And from APM, American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture magazine that gives you everything you need to win your dinner party. You just got an impolite joke from writer and audio genius Jonathan Goldstein. That'll help break the ice. His new podcast, Heavyweight, is out now, and we'll speak with him in just a minute. Plus, we chat with critically acclaimed director Kelly Reichert about her new movie, Certain Women. Also coming up, comedian Kevin Hart talks about growing as a comedian, literally. Grammy-winning musician Chris Thiele, a.k.a. your new home companion, provides a party playlist. And funny man Kyle Kinane relaxes with some conspiracy theories. Plus, Emily Post's great-great-grandkids tell you how to take a compliment. But first, small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. I said it. I was wrong. And I apologize. The Nobel Prize in Literature was announced today. American singer and songwriter... Bob Dylan. Folks are starting to clean up the mess Hurricane Matthew left behind. Now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with Jonathan Goldstein. He is producer and host of the new podcast Heavyweight, in which he takes real people back to the moment in their lives when everything seemed to go wrong. Mm. Jonathan, what story are you going to be talking about at parties this week? I am going to be talking about this guy who ended up making himself a big man about town in the startup industry due to a box of donuts. The, using a box of donuts. This is using a box of donuts. Yeah. How did this technique? Yeah. Work? Well, this guy came from Lithuania to San Francisco, and he wanted to get a job at a startup, and he had no connections. So he went out and got himself a Postmates delivery outfit. Mm. Okay, that's like a food delivery service. Yes. Got dressed up in it, and then went out to a bakery, bought himself a box of donuts, and stuck his resume to the inside <laughs> lid of the donuts, Jeez. and showed up at uh, startups all around town just as a donut delivery guy. And then once he'd get in there, he would deliver his Trojan horse <laughs> box of donuts to CEOs. What a genius. I, mean, I never would have guessed that a box of donuts would get you far in San Francisco. I figured by now they're eating like algae squares, <laughs> drinking Soylent. Yeah. I think everybody's just so guilty to walk into a donut shop and buy their own donuts that with some uh-huh. magical creature shows up with Donuts, you just take them. And you give him anything he asks for, a job, a million dollars, whatever. (laughs) Just don't tell anyone. He's their dealer. He's their gluten dealer. (laughs) And and it's worked for him to the extent even that he got an interview with the CEO of Postmates, the place that he was impersonating delivery people from. (laughs) Well, of course, he's got a ton of experience. He's been doing the job for weeks. Yeah. All right, Jonathan Goldstein, thanks so much for the small talk. Yeah, thank you. And now let's go deliver some cocktails to our mouths. Once again, we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our patent-pending history lesson with booze. Let's start with the history part, and as we look forward to Halloween weekend, we're going to tell you about a night so rowdy, it changed the way we describe rowdy nights. Maybe. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. It all starts with a Brit named Henry Beresford, a well-educated, super-rich jerk. At age 17, Henry had inherited a ton of money and an honorary title, the Marquis of Waterford, which did not make him behave honorably. After graduating from posh Eton College, he embarked on a career of fighting, breaking stuff, and drinking. They called him the Mad Marquis. One night in 1837, he lived up to the nickname, 
He and a crowd of pals had just stumbled out of a night at the racetrack when they came to a gate at the edge of the town of Melton Mowbray. To pass through, they'd have to pay a toll. Instead, Henry and company gleefully trapped the toll collector in his booth by nailing it shut. Then they produced a bucket of paint and painted the gate red. And then they marauded through town painting more stuff, including doors, windows, a building called the Swan Porch, and, legend has it, the constables who showed up to arrest them. The next day, Henry and his pals were fined a hundred pounds each for the damage. But it was a small price to pay for immortality. Their civic disturbance gave birth to a phrase we still use today to describe drunken debauchery, painting the town red. Now, some doubt this rampage was the true origin of that term. For one thing, paint the town red doesn't appear in print until 50 years after the incident. But don't tell that to the people of Melton Mowbray. A sign in their market square proudly commemorates Henry's little riot. And they say when the Swan Porch underwent renovations, it revealed splashes of red paint. So that was the history lesson. Now for the drink to go along with it, I am joined by Paul Flight. He is a bartender at the Anne of Cleves Pub in Melton Mowbray, United Kingdom, the town that was allegedly painted red. Paul, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to speak to you. So uh, what drink did this history inspire you to make? Ah, yes. I had a bit of a debauched afternoon with my assistant manager Ian and my boss, Mike. <laughs> Got rather boozy testing things out for you. Well, we appreciate you doing that. But we came up with um, a cocktail that we entitled the Flanders Mare, as in a female horse. Why is it called the Flanders Mare? Right, in honour of Anne of Cleves. Oh, which is the name of your pub, I see. It was Henry VIII's fourth wife. Henry VIII, he didn't meet Anna Cleves before they got married. They only met on the wedding day, apparently. Okay. Um, he was shown a portrait, married her, and then actually saw her, and he was very, very unimpressed, and he called her the Flanders Mare. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So he called his one of his wives a mare. Yeah, the Flanders Mare. And the Marquis, he painted your town red and locked up the tollkeeper in a booth. Yeah. It sounds like the upper class are, act, act like a bunch of jerks around there. Um, that could be a less than polite phrase. They're a little <laughs> bit more behaved now. Okay. Although anything's possible with the way the aristocracy works in this country. It's a strange one. So, hey, tell me what's in your drink. How do you make it? Just get a pitcher, mm-hmm. put some ice in there. Okay. And then three shots of strawberry vodka, four shots of cranberry juice, one shot of grenadine. I see a theme here. All these things are red so far. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Two shots of Campari, fresh strawberries and some fresh mint, and then top it up with American ginger ale. Oh, my goodness. Now I see why you guys had heavy heads after experimenting on this drink. Well, bearing in mind, we had to make several versions first before we actually got to the one that we decided that we liked. (laughs) Enrico, we should note the Mad Marquis who painted Melton Mowbray red. Mm, Henry Beresford, yes. Yeah, he was also rumored to be the legendary Spring-Heeled Jack, mm. this masked British figure who'd, like, jump in front of carriages so they'd crash, and then he'd run off laughing. It was like a kid of mischief night. Yeah, never let the rich grow idle, is what we learned. They do stuff like that. <laughs> That's right. They just... Or they run for president. It's crazy. Yeah. Folks, you'll find that cocktail recipe, as always, at dinnerpartydownload.org. 
And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today our guest is comedian Kyle Kinane. He's earned a following with gravel-voiced, self-deprecating stories, often about what he ate or drank or wished he didn't. You can see him on Netflix in Judd Apatow's series Love, and you can hear him on Comedy Central, where he is their voiceover announcer. His new special premieres on that channel this weekend. It's called Loose in Chicago, and it inspired him to assemble this list. Being a comedian and constantly having attention on me in the evenings to make people laugh, Sometimes you got to shut it down for a while and just uh, entertain yourself and, well, get loose. So here's a couple things that help me get loose in the world. One of my first things that I like to do to get loose is go grocery shopping in the middle of the night. Having worked in retail, it's where everything's perfect on the shelves. So you're just walking through this fluorescent light, and it's quiet except for a little bit of music. Inoffensive 80s pop hits that are coming through. There's no hustle and bustle. I don't have to be anywhere afterwards. It's like a calming sense, like being in a cathedral almost. One experience I had, I was just wandering down the deodorant aisle, and Old Spice came out with all these different types of uh, scents, and I was just having this whole thing just by myself, just sitting there smelling them. That's when I realized that deodorant is basically candles for guys. One of them was called Showtime. And I cracked it open and took a big old sniff. And out loud, I said, Showtime it is! And I laughed at it immediately. If anybody's watching security camera footage of this grocery store, they just saw a guy cradling a 12-pack of beer, sniffing deodorant, and just getting real happy all of a sudden. Uh, the next thing on the list that I like to do to get loose is I listen to a podcast called Coast to Coast. Good morning, good evening, wherever you may be across the nation, around the world. I'm George Norrie. Welcome to Coast to Coast AM. Later on tonight, the UFO Highway. Here's what It's a conspiracy theory podcast, and it was on AM radio for the longest time. I didn't get into it until recently. I like to put it on right when I'm going to bed. He's such a soothing voice. And it helps me go to sleep, but I don't know, through osmosis, I don't know what I'm believing in now. He was beamed aboard something, and he was missing for days. One of the things I like about it, though, is the host will entertain anyone's idea. It was probably a couple of years ago, in my girlfriend's driveway, they saw kind of a uh, spinning light above the car. She tried to touch it, and it ascended right up into the sky. And he listens to them all with objectivity and gives them all a platform and will just inquire without judgment, without sarcasm. And it's kind of a nice thing to hear, especially in the midst of an election and everybody's throwing around their opinions and what they think is best for anything else. It's an accepting of like, all right, there's all these different types of people out there. And some of these conspiracy theories, it's not all about how the government's going to take it out. Sometimes they're just entertaining and it's fun. And that's kind of a looseness that's an indication that you're doing okay if you can worry about extraterrestrials or somebody who thinks aliens live in a mountain. Could this have been something that was beamed down to you folks from above, from some other craft? Well, I'm not sure. That's, that's the reason why I called in. My third example of getting loose is a very general sense of getting lost. Backpacking stuff, I've tried. I know it's not some major feat to sleep outdoors for a night. I mean, that's what Boy Scouts do that. They send children out to do that for badges. 
But for someone that's just from the suburbs and is proud that they can make eggs without a microwave sometimes, this was big for me. I'm not a mountain man. I don't know what I'm doing. The first time I tried this, like, it's bear country. Anything that might smell remotely of food, you have to keep it 50, 100 yards away from your camp. The first night I went backpacking, I dumped freeze-dried chicken tetrazzini all over me. I was shaking it up. I didn't close the bag. And I I basically seasoned myself for the bears. But one time I did hike far enough where I knew the sun was setting. I was like, well, I have to camp here. I can't hike back because it'll be too dark. And it's something I never thought I would be able to do. I just slept in the snow. I mean, I had tent and everything. I was prepared. But just this sense of being by yourself in the wilderness, when you know there's no outside judgment, it allows you to behave in way. I mean, there was some nudity in the mountains that night. And it was cold nudity, but it was something like, I'm under moonlight alone. I, I got loose, is what I'm saying. I guess physically, I got loose. The guest list from Kyle Kinane. His new special is called Loose in Chicago. It premieres this weekend on Comedy Central. All right, coming up, director Kelly Reichert shares the real reason she shoots her movies in far-flung rural places. It's very selfish. You get everyone's full attention because there's nothing else going on. Same reason I throw parties on Tuesdays. Ah. That and more when the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the arts and leisure section of public radio. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Later, comedian Kevin Hart talks about bringing his kids to work, mm. and we find out what to eat during a drought. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. Yes, and this week it's director Kelly Reichert. Her minimalist indie films like Meek's Cutoff have won loads of critical acclaim and a devout following. Most are shot in the Northwest, and they focus on characters on the fringes of society. Her new movie, Certain Women, is no exception. It features an all-star cast, including Laura Dern, and it's based on short stories written by Miley Malloy. The movie examines the lives of very different people in modern-day Montana and what happens when they collide. When we met, I asked Reichert how she plays her characters off one another. There's all different kinds of um, uh, inequality going on in each scene, and the opening story with uh, Jared Harris and Laura Dern, you know, Jared Harris is a white man in his 50s that is just figuring out for the first time that things aren't going his way and that the uh, system might not be fair and might not work in his favor. And he just, he takes it really personally and he's really angry yeah. about it. And he's, you know, a foot away from Laura Dern, who's playing a lawyer named Laura, who, you know, if you're a woman working in that field, I'm sure you've uh, figured out a long time ago that uh, certain things don't always work in your favor, including that she's having trouble explaining things to her male client who can't really hear what she's saying. No one understands what my life has become. What a total miserable thing my life has become. I wish my wife would roll over on the highway. Oh my God, I swear I will leave you right here. The only thing left to do is get a machine gun and kill everyone. No. No, you're gonna have to get out. All right, 
Out. No, you can't say those things to me. Laura Dern is magnificent in that role of this kind-hearted but put-upon lawyer. She is one of the certain women in this movie. The other are Michelle Williams, a regular in your films. Uh, In this, she plays this calculating gentrifier. And Lily Gladstone, who plays a lonely ranch hand. Your movies are slower paced and more atmospheric than most films that a lot of these actors are working on. How do you bring them on board to your way of doing things? It's kind of different. Every person's so different and has such a different way of working, and we don't have a lot of rehearsal time. So a lot of times you just don't know what the dynamic is going to be between two people until it's happening, and you've kind of you know, lived with this idea in your head of what everything will sound like, and then the actors are playing off each other, and the scene takes on a whole new life that is going to inevitably be different than whatever was preconceived. Is there a moment that made it to film that surprised you while it was going on while you were shooting it? Oh, there were lots of surprises. Well, one scene that comes to mind is uh, the scene in Albert's house in the Michelle Williams section of the film. Um, She is this woman coming with this agenda to buy some sandstone off an elderly neighbor. Played by Rene Abijois. Yeah. In his yard, he has a pile of old stones from an old school, and she wants them in this big home she's building. And she just yeah. pours on the charm. She's a little bit manipulative, it feels like. And then he is just plays this really vulnerable, almost like he's um, uh, has a little bit of dementia. Yeah. We filmed Michelle first, and, and Michelle just, you know, kind of went for it. And then when we got to Rene, his performance was so heartfelt and he was so exposed you know that it really put a different light on Michelle's performance it made it even a little harsher yeah and she really was like yeah you gotta let me do it over (laughs) I was like no it's gonna be perfect Albert so we were wondering about the sandstone in the front yard and if you'd be willing to sell it to us have you talked to Kyle Yazzie lately? Is he going to help you build your house? I think so. He's going to let me use his backhoe anyway. Well, you should dig up a garden when I got the backhoe. We're not really planting a garden. Russian olives, very nice. They make good shade trees. It'll be tough to care for our garden since we can't really move out here full time. At least not until our daughter gets through high school. Kyle's a nice young man. Plays a good banjo. His kids have been out to play on our land. I guess I trust him all right. Well, I guess I'll give you that sandstone. That scene is delicate. It's it's pretty raw. You also hear James <laughs> Legros there playing Michelle Williams' husband. Yeah, I mean, it's did, a harsh scene. You're, you're, you're laughing when you say that. Do you, do you? I mean, it seems like the movie is really about that sort of intersection of two different people coming together and just watching the discomfort that comes from that. True. I mean, I got to live a little bit in the shoes of that character because I, uh, my colleague Peggy Awish, the filmmaker Peggy Awish, had, a, had made a film called Certain Women, and I really wanted the title. And I really wanted mm. her to be really happy that I was uh, stealing her title. And um, <laughs> I, you know, found myself trying to uh, frame it in such a way of like, won't this be great for you, Peggy, if I use the same title for my film that you've used for your film? And I was like, oh, I am the character. And um, <laughs> so, um, yeah. Not a lot of people make movies like this these days. Where do you find your artistic confidence? <laughs> um, I just like to um, have a project to 
work on, I like to, like if I don't have a project, it all kind of becomes like emails and get this, mm. you know, do this chore. And You'd kinda, rather film chores than do chores. Oh, I like to film a chore. Oh, well, I like certain chores. Yeah, there's certain, you know, I like to wash dishes. I like to, you know, my favorite thing about going to film festivals is getting into the hotel and ironing my clothes, which I never iron my clothes at home. I really like that a lot. <laughs> yeah, but you could make uh, more mainstream movies and still get to iron at festivals, but you don't. You All your films are uh, are part of your singular vision, which uh, focuses on outsiders. It's rich in atmosphere and lingering shots at smaller things maybe that don't serve as the plot. Your All your films are shot in the Northwest, for example. Well, why is that? I'm a one-trick pony. Not at all, but but you do live in New York. So, what what is the appeal of the kind of Northwest of our country? It takes for you? me out of New York. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, it was a new landscape for a time, and uh, it's nice to go sort of off the grid to make a film where everybody's away from home and away from the hassles mm. of everyday life. And so you kind of get everyone's. It's very selfish. You get everyone's full attention because there's nothing else going on in these places. You have their undivided attention. Yeah. They have nothing else to do besides work on your movie all the time. And <laughs> <laughs> wow, you're such a taskmaster, but I guess you are a director. Yeah. Kelly Reichert, her new movie is called Certain Women, and it is certainly worth seeing. Agreed. By the way, that chat did make me wonder, how does anyone shoot movies in New York or L.A. without the crew huh. getting distracted? Constantly. That's right. Well, there's lousy cell phone reception. Uh, so it's a good point. It's kind of like being in the middle of nowhere. Um, and folks, uh, you heard a bit there about Michelle Williams' performance. You will find our interview with Williams, along with many others, at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the main course part of the show where we talk about food. And Brendan, it's hard to believe, but while the East Coast got hammered with disastrous rains this week, here in Southern California, where I am, we are still enduring a drought. They, they call it the slow motion disaster. That is right. right. But there is one woman out here who's proving we can use our water, what little we have of it, better, and grow food sustainably despite the drought. Her name is Lee Adams, and at the L.A. County Arboretum, where she's a horticulturist, she runs a big garden called Crescent Farm, and it produces a bounty of fruits and nuts with very little irrigation, even though L.A. only gets about eight inches of rain a year. When I visited the Arboretum, which, by the way, also boasts a flock of roaming peacocks, Lee explained a few of her techniques, some of which, she said, a child could grasp. When you were a kid, you rolled over a log, and you knew that underneath it would be? Moist. Yes. If you're putting logs in your garden, you're capturing water. The same principle that occurs if you have a cold beer on a hot day. The moist air condenses out on the cooler, denser surface of the vessel you're drinking from. That's what occurs around stones and logs. But the logs have the ability to absorb that water and hold on to it. Which is why I'm looking around here and I see it is true. I thought that it was merely decorative, but you've got a ton of logs lying around in this garden. Way beyond beyond that. That mound down there, there are large logs that came down in a record storm five years ago that are underneath that mound and they're covered over with soil. So you're also burying logs to capture water. Yes, and they're very effective. We grew a crop of squash up there without watering it in this record drought. 
how do we translate that to our personal gardens? We should just put logs Excellent. all over the place? We should. We should have logs and we should use layered planting so that we have a canopy effect, a tree not sitting in isolation in the middle of the lawn, but a tree surrounded by shrubs, surrounded by lower growth, so that we mimic forest ecology. So kind of each layer of those things is helping to keep the water towards the ground, I guess? And, and, and protect the plants from evaporation and extreme heat. They also carry nutrients back and forth to one another in a, a micro-ecosystem. I have to say that I, I just got distracted because there was a peacock walking down the street behind you. Uh, we have bird pressure. <laughs> That's the actual term in uh, landscaping. Meaning that there are a lot of birds around wrecking your work? Yeah, these are not lightweight birds. These are 20-pound birds uh, eating our food and landing on top of things. So so if I use some of your techniques in my backyard, I might actually do better than you because I don't have peacocks ruining it. Yes, yes, you might do a, way, a whole lot better. My backyard looks fantastic all the time. Um, all right, now I want to sample some of the fruit of this garden. Is it specifically kind of drought-resistant crops that you're growing here? Generally, yes. You're standing underneath a passion fruit vine. It also provides the most delicious fruit and beautiful flowers. Is this a particularly drought-resistant plant? Yes, it is. Can I try one? Uh, these aren't ripe. We, we, this is a public garden, so we do lose our ripe fruit that people are familiar with, and they are p familiar with passion fruit. <laughs> yes, they are. Um, this is a food segment, so I have to try something. Okay. Is there? What well, do you have? I, I have some surprises for you. Uh, have you ever had a jujube? In a movie theater? Yeah, this is a little bit different, but almost as sweet. Jujube is an actual fruit? Yes, it is. I, it's interesting because jujube is one of my favorite words in the world. People who know me will know that I'll just randomly say that word because it's fun. But I, I always thought that it was just a candy, so it's well, named after a fruit. There, I picked some here, but I'd like you to see them on the tree because the profusion with which they grow is astonishing. Once you see them and know that a tree can grow without being watered for years, once it's established, this is one of the lowest water use trees that I could think of offhand. It'll keep fruiting even though there's no water? Yes. How is that even possible? By sending massive long roots down into the ground. It will find water. It will find a leaky pipe or the neighbor's air conditioning drip or something. It will find Does that make for good jujubes, air conditioning watered jujubes? Actually, um, there is no transference of heavy metals, which is what's in air conditioning water, into fruit. Trees take care of that for us. All right, so I'm just going to take one. You've already plucked this from the tree. Yes. They look like dates, kind of. They look kind like of. dates. Okay, here we go. Oh, yeah. Mm. Oh, it's very date-like. It's really pleasant. Not overly sweet, but still just sweet enough. The inside actually looks like a chewy almond. I could eat these all day long. By the way, does this only thrive in dry weather? No, they can actually take water as well. Okay, so having access to this tree is not an excuse to create a drought or live in a drought zone. No, it isn't. A reason to live in a dry area is cactus. And if you aren't eating nopal cactus, you want to eat nopal cactus, grilled nopal with a little bit of feta on it, maybe a slice of tomato and a 
oh, you have to see our homegrown corn for making our own tortillas and pozole. And Do you have a, a cafe where you're serving this yet? Yeah, my house. <laughs> Horticulturist Lee Adams, she runs Crescent Farm at the L.A. County Arboretum, Jujube. You love that word. I do so much. All right, we're going to take a break, but coming up, comic Kevin Hart talks about the character that made him a star himself. When the dinner party download, Jujube. Stop it. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, culture, food, and humor to fuel your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, comedian Kevin Hart grows an inch almost before our eyes. Mm. Plus, the newly minted host of A Prairie Home Companion, Chris Thiele, forces us to pay attention to some great music. Oh my. But first, speaking of questionable things like forcing, it's time to learn some etiquette. That's right. Each week, you send in your questions about how to behave. Often, we ask them willy-nilly to totally unqualified celebrities. Mm-hmm. But today, we're calling in etiquette reinforcements. Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senning are the great-great-grandkids of Emily Post and are all-around protectors of politeness. That's right. They are co-authors of Emily Post's Etiquette, the 18th edition. You can also catch them hosting the podcast Awesome Etiquette. Lizzie and Dan, thanks as always for joining us. Thank you so much for that awesome intro. Indeed, gentlemen, uh, cast as etiquette superheroes. I want a badge. I want a cape. (laughs) I want stars. You have a a creased cape. Always the right cape. The right (laughs) time. So, um, guys, the election, um, there's this election happening right now. And let's just say that a lot of etiquette matters have come up, right, in recent weeks. I know. But but we thought we'd focus on the positive. Um, The last question in the recent presidential debate had Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump each giving each other a rare compliment. It was crazy. Yeah. yeah, It got us wondering, though, what's the etiquette around compliments? How are you supposed to receive them? Or to give them even. Well, the advice about good compliments is the, the practice is to get good at complimenting people for their work, the qualities that that someone brings to a situation, the content of their character, so that you go a a, a level deeper than their appearance. And I think when it comes to receiving the actual compliment, we really try to encourage people to receive a compliment well, as opposed to brush it off, Mm. ignore it, deny it. it. Come on, say, thanks, I really appreciate Mm. that. Yeah, and you don't, do you have to respond with a compliment? Nope. It's nice to do so when you can, but you want it. You want compliments to be genuine, like gifts. You don't have to give someone a gift or tell them that you were going to give them a gift just because they gave you one. All right. Well, okay. we'll we'll leave it to the American people to decide if those were genuine compliments or not that we saw on the campaign trail the other night. Uh, how about we get to some of these etiquette questions folks have written in for you? We love it. Let's do it. All right. Here's something from Karen in Arlington, Virginia. Karen writes, is it okay to be a backseat driver in an Uber? I recently had an awful Uber ride where the driver missed many turns and also didn't correctly follow the GPS, but every time I wanted to chime in with my own directions, I felt shy about it. Didn't want to come off aggressively and risk tarnishing my own five-star passenger rating. What should I do in the future? First of all, I like the fact that Uber, because they have passenger ratings, you got to watch your own behavior yeah. when you're in the car. But yeah. I raised a question to Dan in on our car ride over here where I said, hey, would this be like telling someone how to do their job? I mean, this person, mm. clearly, they're supposed to know how to get from A to B. Right. And he said, you know, not all Uber drivers drive all the time yeah. the way a cabbie might. And not all cab drivers do either. But This is why we're in a difficult situation, right, as passengers, yeah. because these are not actually professionals. That's kind of supposed to be the point. Some of them are, but not all of them. They are, yeah. but they're yeah. not. Exactly. And you just don't know. And so- nobody likes a backseat driver 
except maybe an Uber driver who needs a little help from you <laughs> figuring out how to get where you're both trying to get to. So what do we do? I say go for it, but be polite about it. Don't be obnoxious. Don't be shouting directions. Offer to help. Mention if you've got some familiarity with the area or if you've got a phone in your hands that's going to make it easier for you to keep an eye on the map than it is for them. I would add that you have to suffer the consequences if the route you select is slow. (laughs) You don't get to, you know, moan and complain about it. Uh You just have to suffer the consequences. I agree. Uh, This next question comes from John. And this is almost like an LSAT question, so listen closely. <laughs> okay. The question is, I plan to propose to my girlfriend of seven years on an exotic trip to India. She's the oldest of three sisters, and we just learned her youngest sister's boyfriend will propose to her just one week after our India trip. Mm. Should I propose before the trip to create space between the two proposals? Wow. You got us? Did you write that down? <laughs> I'm a I'm an only child, so this is something I never thank God have to think about. This is a lot of people do we actually do get this question commonly and it, it comes in the form of engagements, it comes in the form of celebrating a baby and a wedding at the same time. Oh. Wedding dates that, that are too close together for family then have to choose which they go to. It can be fraught, and I think that good of you to think about it. Don't worry about it. Move ahead organically with your plans. There, there are so many factors, and you can't, if you try to anticipate and they're trying to anticipate, just do what's going to make sense for you. And let's also not assume, as much as you might think that their proposal is going to go well or that yours yeah, might, exactly. I mean, not that I want to put the seed of doubt. John might meet someone in India before <laughs> he proposes. Right. Oh, no. John, just something might happen. <laughs> I'm just saying the world's an amazing place. Who knows right? what's going to happen? There you go, John. Our next question comes from Belinda in Southern California, and oh, what a surprise, it's about a car. Linda writes, (laughs) I was looking for parking one morning, and the only spot I found had neighboring cars badly parked on either side. Mm -hmm. I managed to fit into the space, but couldn't get my door open without hitting the other car. I resigned myself to finding another space, but then made eye contact with one of the bad parkers still in her car. Uh I think she noticed, but quickly looked away. It's rare to actually see the culprit in these cases. Given this golden opportunity... Did I have the right to call this person out? Oh, as a Southern Californian, I see. So I'm wondering about the nature of the call out. Right. And I I think the reproachful glance that sort of emerged as the call out very spontaneously in this situation is often appropriate. It's often just enough to bring someone's attention to bad behavior that they might not be completely aware of. Safety trumps etiquette advice. Mm -hmm. Always be careful. Be really careful about approaching other people and confronting them about their bad behavior. Especially when their weapon is like a 2,000-pound car. You don't want to be that person who's walking around glaring at people all the time. Like, that's not a a pleasant place to live or be. And who knows what that person's going through? Why are they sitting in their car in a parking lot? Like, maybe they had a horrible news and they just slipped into a space really quickly to field a call or something. Oh, yeah. understanding of you. Yes, it's very understanding. Says says the man who doesn't drive anymore. Exactly. (laughs) Easy for the New Yorker to say from the comfort of his subway car. Uh, Lizzie and Dan, thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave. Thank you both. We love being here with you. You are most welcome. Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senning, they are co-authors of Emily Post's Etiquette, the 18th edition, and co-hosts of the awesome podcast, Awesome Etiquette. And folks, if you have the urge to confront strangers over petty grievances, please tell us about it so we can talk you down. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. This week, one of the biggest comedians in America is putting out a concert film 
So it seemed like a fine time to revisit our conversation with him. That's right. Kevin Hart has had scene-stealing small roles in big films like The 40-Year-Old Virgin, and he's had big roles in the big films Central Intelligence and the Ride Along franchise. But he's best known for his stand-up. His new concert film What Now opens this weekend. When I spoke to him in 2013, he just put out his last one called Let Me Explain. It was filmed during a sold-out show at Madison Square Garden. I first asked how he found his comedic voice. I think the one thing that's most important is being yourself. You know, it took me a lot of time to realize that I didn't have to pretend to be somebody else. You know, Hmm. I didn't have to be a character on stage. I could be myself. And being yourself, you develop a following because you're genuine. You're being real. And when people see that you have that quality, people root for you. So in the beginning of my career, when I was attempting to be all of these other people... They were all pieces from someone else. Like, you didn't know who the hell I was. Once I grasped the concept of stand-up comedy and of writing a joke and of making a segue make sense, then then I said, you know what? I'm in the jello. I don't have to try (laughs) and pretend. I can talk about me and my problems. Was there a particular joke that really broke through for you that you were like, man, I'm on to something? Yes. I mean, my first joke is when I talked about my my wife at the time Mm. and how my wife at the time, basically, we got into an argument. I knew I lost, though. I knew that I didn't win. Tell you how I knew that I lost the fight. Because when the cops came to my house, the cops asked me, did I want to press charges? That's how I know. No, like, that, that's how I know that it didn't go the way I planned it to, you know? Well, there's this thing that you also do with your comedy. For lack of a better word, I'll call it the convoluted kind of story joke. And one of my favorite parts about this special is when you imitate a guy who's lying about why he's late for work. Uh, <laughs> and he says that it's because he saw a baby crossing the road. So I decided to adopt the baby. What I did was I downloaded this app on my iPhone, this adopt the baby app, right? I put the barcode on the baby head. Boop. That way the baby knew he was my baby. I put the baby in the car, I go to pull off, I turn around, a deer was running towards the car. So I'm like, oh this deer is about to eat the baby. That, that's what I'm thinking, right? But then I look closer, I notice the front part of the deer was a deer, the back half was a zebra. It was half deer, half zebra. So I'm like, oh it's a deer, bruh. Like that's what I'm thinking. How did this kind of become part of your style? Uh, I don't know. I just want to first say I don't do drugs. So don't don't blame it on that. No, man, you know what, dude? I'm uh it's all about the way that you think, man. And I think I, I love putting that unexpected punchline in the story. I yeah. love going far left when everybody expected me to stay straight. Are you like writing that on a laptop? Where are you do where are you building that these crazy stories? I just stories? jot down funny thoughts on my iPhone and a notepad. That's what I do wow. all day. I'm going to quote you. You said once, at the end of the day, I want to be part of the same conversation as Chris Rock, Eddie Murphy, Dave Chappelle, and Richard Pryor. First of all, is that why you wore that crazy leather shirt in this concert footage? Yes, sir. (laughs) Because you you wear a black leather shirt and Eddie Murphy famously wore the purple suit and the red suit. Paying homage. Yes, sir. So your comedy is 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 pretty raw, mm-hmm. and your your kids I think are probably too young to have attended one of your events. I'm assuming, but do you ever think about the moment when they're going to tune in and check out Dad's specials? Well, my kids are very young. My kids are eight and five, and they've already had that moment. I put my kids around what I do because I want them to understand what I do and why I do it. 
I want them to have memories of their dad being on stage when they were little and they were sitting on the side. I want them to have memories of dad being done and they coming out and jumping on dad. But you're not worried about the salty language and the kind of adult situations? Well, no, because they understand. They know what's a bad word and what's not. And they Mm. know what they can say and what they can't say. You know, uh, now, do kids cuss when they leave the house? Of course. Uh, how do I know that? Because I cussed when I yeah. left the house. I remember as soon as I left my mom's house, I just started letting them fly. Nobody was around <laughs> me. I did it just because I was could, just because I could. So I imagine that my son's, my daughter's going to do the same thing. It's just the understanding of it. All right. Well, you know, we we have two standard questions on our show that we ask each of our guests, and I, mm-hmm. I want to run them by you. The first question is: What question are you tired of being asked in interviews? Um, did my really get stuck in a toilet and Soul Plane. <laughs> so Soul Plane is what was one of your first uh, feature film appearances. And some people really, really enjoyed it. Other people thought it was kind of goofy. Mm-hmm. I noticed that in this film, it starts with your touring all over your internationally, you're in Europe. And many people are like, you're from Soul Plane, the guy from Soul Plane, which isn't how people think of you in the United States, I think. No, no, you, not at all. Yeah. Two separate things. I mean, there was one point where it was years after I did Soul Plane, and <laughs> it was years after I was in London, and people were like standing outside of the radio station that I was at with mm-hmm. Soul Plane DVDs and posters, as if it just came out. And did you want to take a picture and send it to the critics who maybe weren't so laudatory about Soul Plane? Uh, of course, yes. <laughs> yes. Well, our second question we ask guests is, Tell us something we don't know, and this can be about you, something you, you've never told people about you in an interview before, or it could just be an interesting fact about the world. All right. I'm about to give you a great piece of information. All right. I grew an inch the day before yesterday. I am now five foot five. Document what? it. Write it down. What? And circle it. Yes. That's like Bobby Brady hanging off the, the, the uh, pull-up bar to get taller. How, how did you huge. do that? You're, do you, did you go to a plastic surgeon? or? No, no plastic surgery at all. I just did a bunch of calf raises, and eventually it, it, it hit the spot. So right <laughs> now that inch is there. That's all I needed. I'm not doing any more. I don't want to push the envelope. I'm happy with this height. This is a great thing. Five five is good. What happens when you're, if one of your children gets taller than you? Are you do you think about that moment? Well, no, because I don't think it will happen. <laughs> if they do get taller than me. I'm just going to hit him in the top of the head and make it go in reverse. <laughs> All right. Well, look, I, just one last thing. So one of, some of my favorite moments uh, in the uh, special is right after you do an impersonation of a crazy person, mm-hmm. you play a calm, serious person. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me of like the typical radio voice and delivery. So I was wondering <laughs> if, you, if you could give me like a radio voice out, like your impersonation. My, here's my impression. This is my, this is my radio voice impression. You All right. Yeah. Well, you heard it here first. Kevin, I just want to tell you, congratulations, and we're looking forward to seeing you do what no one else has done. Wow. <laughs> All right. Coming up next, you're going to hear a hot song on the one and one played on the two and two. <laughs> Couldn't have done it better myself. <laughs> Kevin Hart in a conversation Brendan taped with him back in 2013. Kevin's new stand-up concert film, What Now?, opens this weekend. All right. We've come almost to the end of our show. And with apologies to Kevin, we're going to close things out with the help of a real radio host who also knows a thing or two about music. Indeed. This Saturday, Chris Thiele steps on stage as the new permanent host of Public Radio's venerable variety show, A Prairie Home Companion, with the blessing of mentor Garrison Keeler. Chris Mm -hmm. cut his teeth playing mandolin for bluegrass bands Nickel Creek and the Punch Brothers. He's won four Grammys. But he's a musical omnivore and, according to the MacArthur Foundation, a musical genius. Here's Chris with a playlist to spin at your next party. 
or whatever you want to call it. Howdy there, my name is Chris Thiele. Here's the one problem about me being in charge of a dinner party soundtrack. I loathe background music. It's not really going to be a dinner party soundtrack so much as it's just straight up required listening at a dinner party. I hope you enjoy this music that I'm forcing you to listen to. I would probably start with something that was cracklingly new. Let's do something off of the new Radiohead record, which is called A Moon-Shaped Pool. It's called True Love Waits. As much as I love music, I'm seldom moved to tears by a piece of music because I'm almost always listening with my musician hat on. But my first listen to this record, I was sitting there in my hotel room in Philadelphia just looking out into the city, and I had tears in my eyes and a big old lump in my throat. Tom York's vocal performance is a huge part of it. would love to play this for companions. I'd love to be able to then see if it kind of gets them over the what remains of our sherry cocktails, because I suspect we won't be able to do much with them during the song. Almost as important for me as saying, hey, my name is Chris, is saying something like, hi, my name is Chris, and I love Debussy's sense of harmonic organization, which is kind of a fancy way of bringing up just the chords that he's using. One of the first things of his that I freaked out over is the third movement from Claude Debussy's only string quartet. There's this wonderful quote of Debussy's where some composition buffs at, I think, the Paris Conservatory were kind of grilling him about what at the time was a very unconventional composition style. And they said, what rules are you following to write this music, if, if any? And he said, my own pleasure. You really do only have control over pleasing one person, and that's you. Be true to your audience of one. (sighs) That's too beautiful. I can't even hardly stand it. A tip of the hat to my wife, who keeps me honest and reminds me that while I may not like music in the background, most people do. For the third song, a tune from the Boswell sisters called What'd You Do To Me. They were big stars during the 30s. This was pop music. You might put this on and maybe people would be able to sing along at your dinner party. What'd you do to me, oh? What did you do to me? The song's two and a half minutes or something. And there's just basically like three songs in one. It's a little pocket symphony. One is the sort of jolly hop 
that we commonly associate with that period. It's on account of you. This would be a moment during our dinner party where, much to my poor wife's chagrin, I would probably stop the conversation dead in its tracks and go, check out how they just turn on a dime and go into the weird dum 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 What you do She would lovingly roll her eyes, I think. (laughs) I think that I would never play something of mine at a dinner party. I feel like maybe it's in poor taste. But here we are at our imaginary dinner party. This is a song of Punch Brothers called Julep. I died happy in my sleep. I died. Children around and you looking down from heaven to julep on the porch. I think julep in a way is kind of a mantra to enjoy this thing that I have right now. This is good. Potentially this is the meaning of life. A moment like this with someone I love. Yes, sir, I know she's Chris Thiele, the brand new season of the radio show he hosts, kicks off this weekend. It's called A Prairie Home Companion. I think you've heard of it. Possibly. And that's the dinner party download for this week. Thanks to our producer Jackson Musker, associate digital producer Christina Lopez, and assistant producer Christian Coons. Our interns are Kathleen McGovern and Danny Carmichael, Jake Gorski engineer. If you don't already, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and get this dinner party delivered to your ears every week. Mm. While you're there, please leave a comment. It just takes a moment and it helps us out. Enjoy your week and bon appetit. Bon appetit.